The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Fifty-three years ago, this last Wednesday, my parents welcomed me into the world. Seventeen years ago, next Thursday, my husband and I welcomed our daughter into the world. And stretched within about that same period, 79 and 80 years ago, respectively, my four grandparents ushered my father and my mother into the world. We are a family of May birthdays, nestled in and around the traditional celebration of Mother's Day. And next year, not so long after this holiday, if the odds play out, one little birdie, my only little birdie, will fly the nest. And although parenting won't end then, some big, definable chapter will. It was with that in mind, I put in a proposal for a book this last fall an anthology of writings of Unitarian Universalists on this piece of our lives and the work of growing our souls, as A. Powell Davies would say, not just the work of parents, per se, but of all of us who parents who connect to and nurture life into maturity. And so the quest began to get stories from godmothers and grandparents and foster parents and adoptive parents and neighbors and stories of moments and decisions and things we'd learned and often the folks that we were tending to teaching them. And if we were luck, lucky or by accident sometimes, maybe they've learned something from us we're able to discern. And the stories started coming in, some from members of this community, Wonderful stories, rich to read, some of which will be in a volume that next year around this time we can actually hold in our hands. All of this a strategic way to force myself to really sit with this piece of life. The parenting we do in the world. There is a degree of sheer joy that is part of this work like puppies, and to contradict the Seinfeld episode, the one in which a baby was born that Elaine had a hard time understanding how anyone could believe was actually cute. Do you remember that episode? Contradicting that and more, my experience is that we human beings, we come into this world cute, those big eyes, those chubby cheeks and arms, those tiny fingers that curl around one of our own, and the smell of babies. It is probably the one and only time in anyone's life that our poop doesn't smell <laughs> when we're a baby, especially if we're breastfed. All of it, of course, all of this part of nature's brilliant design that made sure that you and I, cranky, demanding, maybe colicky, some of us, would have people fall in love with us. No matter what your story is, you were each born gorgeous and sweet and worthy of love. 
There are rare adults who can't get past their own struggles to connect with a baby, and some folks who don't feel like they have room at a certain point in their lives for the responsibility to parent a child that they give birth to, but none of that has anything to do with us. We were born lovable. What comes after the umbilical cord is cut is the 24-hour-a-day work that begins, and then it gets complicated, doesn't it? Being in relationship, of course, is always lesson-filled, but the relationships where we are the caretakers, the identified adult in the room, those have a whole other tilt. It may be baseline true of all of our parenting efforts that, as Barbara Kingsolver wrote, quote, we lean on the cherished occupation of making ourselves obsolete. But what a road it can be to get there and what it can take out of us in a given patch of time. We heard Dennis's appreciation for his mother this morning. All that faith, all that love, all that tolerance of this complicated and never dull journey to adulthood. The running away, the trouble with the law, the going to professional clown school, to name only a few of the most traumatic moments. Don't you wonder what reflection his mom would give Oh, that we could have heard her. What did it require of her to weather all the worry and adoration of a boy to hold steady to some North Star that sometimes maybe he got lost from seeing in the clouds, but she held both of them true to? And what did it take of our own parents, let's be honest? to get out of our way so that we could stretch those fledgling wings at each stage as they stood by also trying in key moments to be the bumpers in life, padding the hard and dangerous places where they could. What work? I remember when our daughter Lila was first learning how to walk, my parents were over and Rohit was there and Lila got up on those tiny little one-year-old feet and started to do that drunken wobble that they do at the beginning that we all did once. We instantly, as if by plan, fell into a formation in my memory of it, spacing ourselves out, two feet apart, two people on either side, ready to catch her. And she took a few glorious steps forward and we erupted in celebration. And in that split second of celebration, she managed the fastest face plant into the wood floor I have ever seen, evading all of our hands. It was like a metaphor to me that moment, how we could have all this love, all this good intent, all these forces at our disposal, ready for action, and this creature that we loved would still tumble and hard. How I couldn't kid myself about ever being able to completely protect her. Try as I, as we, might. We want them to be independent, but the journey isn't easy. In an essay titled, Civil Disobedience at Breakfast, in a collection of writings on parenting called Chaos, Wonder, and the Spiritual Adventure of Parenting that I highly recommend, Barbara Kingsolver writes, 
Oh, how slight the difference between independent and ornery. And as King Solver's brother would say to her, remember, kids are better in the abstract than in the concrete. The concrete is where it's tough. King Solver tells the story of her daughter who, quote, soon after her second birthday turned to earnest pursuit of languor and shot straight through the ranks to world-class dawdler. I thought it might be my death, she wrote, because King Solver then was a busy working mom, packing a day and a half of life into 24 hours, but her kid lived, she said, on Zen time. One day, one morning, rushing to get her child through the breakfast and morning routine, King Solver said to her, the girl who was languidly not making her way through breakfast, she said in a voice that she imagined was calm, we need to be going very soon. Please be careful not to spill your orange juice. The response, she looked me in the eye and coolly knocked over her glass. She knew exactly what she was doing, a filibuster. Gerald Early, in the same collection of essays, writes, quote, I always assume that people should be interested in learning about two things, themselves and everything that is not themselves. And indeed, we, we teach our kids to be interested in others, but we learn it too, don't we? We learn it as we explore who this other person is, already born formed in some key ways. A bit like the sculptures that Michelangelo used to say, he didn't create from blocks of stone, but he released from it. The sculptor and we get to be about the business of unearthing what is there. And then, inevitably, what the people we find there have to teach us. King Solver, she comes to see what her daughter, only two, is trying to say and to teach. Quote, barreling pell-mell through life was not my daughter's style. A mother ought to arrange mornings to allow time for communing with oatmeal. That was her first opinion. Looking at the protest of orange juice on the counter, King Solver remembers, there had been a time when I'd reduced my own personal code to a button on my blue jeans jacket that advised question authority. A few decades later, the motto of my youth blazed resplendent on my breakfast table the color of Florida sunshine. I could mop up now with maternal pride or eat crow. Chastened and taught, proud of the beings we are graced and challenged to accompany, we often are grown despite ourselves just by this work of helping others to grow. 
We grow because that is inevitably what's required when we are invested body and soul in something outside ourselves. We grow, for instance, the way Lori pointed to in her reflection today. Like Lori's experienced children have a way of bringing the pain of the world home to us, all its failings and broken places suddenly become personal again. All the things we had maybe learned to accept or at least to bear, unacceptable as they are, when someone tender and subject to them is ours to protect, love wakes us up again to the prophetic work of this world doesn't it? Middle school cruelty, a culture that promotes body dysphoria, a culture still dangerous to women and also to men, racial injustice, economic inequalities, intolerance for different sexual and gender orientations, insensitivity to different abilities, to difference of any kind. Any and all patterns of diminishment become ones our nerves grow raw against. We are or become ever more determined prophets and protesters fighting to solve the world's ills against the time clock of our children's and our grandchildren's lives, of the lives of any we love and are called to nurture. In general, the people we parent expand our abilities to love, to be patient, to see where we would limit them but are asked not to, to have faith, to hope, to want more than anything else the welfare of someone else, to be our best selves as often as we can. In the anthology I mentioned, there's this other essay. It's titled Palsy by writer Beth Kephart. Kephart tells part of the story of her relationship with her son, Jeremy, who has cerebral palsy. Reflecting on her relationship with him, she describes this sweet and resilient and generously loving seven-year-old boy and then who he has made her all his struggles against his physical limits, his vast ability to love, all of it. She writes, Jeremy has taken me through these last seven years of life and taught me wonder. He has completed me wrenched me in and out of myself, forced me past my boundaries, looked into me with his wide chocolate eyes and demanded loyalty, spirituality, and faith. He has elevated me so that I can stand and look up and see who he is and who I must somehow be, who I must be, to be his mother. Kephart reflects on this as she sits in plastic chairs at a talent show at the end of his weeks of day camp. It's a camp for kids with all kinds of challenges and abilities. 
things that often make them other in our world. And the room in this moment is filled with joy and laughter. The kids have made their own costumes, they've planned and choreographed the night's entertainment, but Kephart sits worried. Will her son overcome his stage fright? How will he manage backstage? She sits watching for the glistening curve of his wheelchair to peek out from behind the curtain to see how he will face the next threshold that asks courage and independence of him, of the kind life constantly invites. Kephart sits, body and spirit clenched so hard in fear and love that she starts to get a migraine. It's a moment I feel like we all know some version of love and how it makes us powerless observers of so much that could break our heart or make it sore and how often it will do both. Love that we sign up for when we tether our lives to others as we do here in church, teaching Sunday school, helping out a neighbor, forging relationships with refugees who come to our country alone, or with our stepchildren, or tutoring in the community. A thousand ways we hold new and maturing life after the umbilical cord is cut when the real work of parenting in the world begins. We do it, and it was done for us. And it's what we celebrate today, all of it. So to close this morning, let's return to Kephart in her seat, clenched. The camp show has begun. Mom, her mother is sitting with her. Mom, I half whisper, half scream, do you see him? But it's too late to ask or answer that question because now, halfway between the nether of the background and the edge of the sea, the children hush one another, the ones on stage already, and remember something suddenly, expectantly, stare off into the wings. Our eyes follow their eyes, take their cue. They come from opposite directions, the girl and the boy in their chairs, his eyes, two pools of dark liquid as huge and as gentle as a fawn's. Everything fragile about them, but their hands, their fingers, which cling to the controls of their chairs and propel their bodies across the stage. It is enough for us that these children have appeared, but by now they have begun to dance whirring in and out of each other's path like bright tropical birds. It's a mystery. It is beyond human how these two children glide and circle each other and spin their wheels, making no noises as they turn their faces shy, soft as feathers and triumphant. We do not speak to one another. We do not lean over and say, but they are tiny but they are fragile. We only watch them 
And now we lift our eyes and watch the 20 who stand behind the two children on wheels, the 20, Jeremy among them, who are upright as props and smiling, beaming, proud of all they can do and all who they can be on stage. Despite whatever legacies their swaying shoulders bear, we, here in our plastic chairs, cannot reach out and we cannot touch. It is impossible to hold on to this beauty. We are forced to sit and to see that life is sacred and secret. And we are forced to understand these things without the tendrils of touch or the logic of words. We are elevated to the courage of mothers and fathers, to the courage of children everywhere. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.